Well, good morning again. Good to have you here today. If you're our guest and you're visiting, we've never met before. My name is Brad Chaney. I'm one of the pastors here. And the sermon today is a continuation of the one I preached on Easter a couple of weeks ago. That, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, you, I can't remember what I said two weeks ago. So I will um, summarize it real quickly for you. I was speaking about the unique resources that Christianity um, su- supplies to our culture and to our world in terms of hope. Um, and, and it is a world where there is, there seems to be a, a society-wide loss of collective hope. There's a ton of pessimism. And what I try to make the case on Easter Sunday is the message of Easter is not, oh, there's life after the grave. Um, that's not the That's not the only message of Easter. What's happening on Easter is the future healing power that is going to take place at the end of time has come into the present in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That thing that we, every human being longs for, the the king to come and the golden age when things are are finally made right, that has, has happened in human history and so it creates a very unique um, perspective on hope. I said that hope is uh, three things. It is historical, and then I said it, it, it was futural. And when I said futural, I thought that I was making up a word, but one of you back there, you texted me after the service and told me there is such a word as futural. So it is historical, it is futural, and it is deeply personal. And as always, the sermon's online. If you want to, um, you didn't hear it, and you, you want to um, go back and hear it. Um, there was more that I wanted to say. I was drawing that sermon largely from a book that was written by Tim Keller entitled Hope in Times of Fear, The Resurrection and the Meaning of Easter. And uh, I wanted to get to the second half of it, and I realized I just didn't have enough time, so I decided to make it a two-part two sermon. Consider this quote. Every one of us wants the storyline of our lives to go from success to success from victory to victory, until it all ends happily ever after, (laughs) don't we? But throughout the Bible, we discover that life comes through death, that triumph comes through weakness. We see God all throughout the Bible intentionally reversing the narrative pattern where you would expect the story to go. He's always reversing the narrative pattern. And, um, It's been variously described as the great reversal, or it's also been called the upside-down kingdom. But essentially, all it is is simply just the outworking of cross and resurrection. When you stop to think about it, that is the way that God works through human history. It's the way that he works through the life of the Messiah, and it's the way that he works through our lives. So what I want to try and do is, is challenge you to, like, what would happen if you began to see all of your life through that cross and resurrection matrix? Most of us, including myself, do not. We, we are not self-consciously living with it. In a cross and resurrection story, with a cross and resurrection God. Like, every time, every time I experience weakness, I hate it. (laughs) I lash out against it. Every time we are threatened, we freak out. Every time um, something comes against us, we, yeah, I was talking to one of my daughters this morning and she said, oh, I had a nightmare last night. I dreamed that I got a B in my, on my final in my, um, one of our college classes. And I, and I thought, 
and she's like, you know, she's, she has a nightmare. She's, she's freaking out about it. And um, I thought, that's me. That is us. That is all of us. Because we're not consciously living in a cross and resurrection world. And so what happens when we do? You know, we affirm that Jesus is king. Amen. He is, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But he is the king of the upside down kingdom. <laughs> what happens when you start to live that way? What, what does that do for your sense of hope? Um, so let's unpack that then. There are several different scriptures I'm going to go through today. Beginning in Genesis chapter 48, we'll also look at Luke chapter 14 and Luke, Luke chapter 6. But if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis 48, 1 through 14. Uh, and as always, it's printed in your bulletin. The only comment I want to make before reading this is when you go back into Genesis, into the world of Genesis, into the uh, patriarchal ancient culture of Genesis, there are really two iron laws at play. Number one is that the value of a woman was in her beauty and her fertility. Special emphasis on her fertility. You know, the more children she could have, the more laborers, more farmhands, more soldiers for the tribe, etc. You know, that's the worth of a woman. Number two was the law of primogenitor. The law of primogenitor. You may have heard that before. The eldest son is entitled to nearly all the family estate and all the family wealth and all of the family honor. And those were just kind of the iron laws of those societies. Those are in the background as we read uh, as Joseph brings his son to Jacob uh, when Jacob is dying. He brings his sons. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, that is another name for Jacob, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh uh, was the firstborn. Again, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The material I'm covering today is not, it wasn't something entirely new for me, but it was material that, you know, when you, you hear something again, but it just, it hits you in a new way. 
that's how I felt as I was going through this. It just, it hit me. Um, I felt like the Holy Spirit was just driving it deeper inside of me. And so that's my hope and prayer. It does the same for you today. I want to look at two things. Number one, the people who get chosen by the cross, the cross and resurrection God. The people who get chosen. And secondly, the pattern for living in an upside down kingdom. So the people in the pattern. And we begin here in Genesis 48 with Ephraim and Manasseh. So these are two sons that were born to Jacob when he was in Egypt. They were born to, to, uh, his, to him through an Egyptian wife. And if you know anything about the story with Joseph and his brothers, you know that there, there were the potentials for bad blood to run <laughs> between them in future years and perhaps between their descendants. It's possible that Joseph was worried that these two sons might in later days in Israel's history you know, be rejected by the, their, his brothers. You know, I mean, who are you guys? You were born in Egypt. You were born to an Egyptian wife. You have no, you have no part in the inheritance of Jacob. So Joseph, in order to um, make sure that all bases are covered, brings these two sons to the patriarch you know, for the, the, the vastly important patriarchal blessing. And... Um, Look how, this, how Joseph stations the two boys in verse 13. Manasseh is the oldest son, and so he is stationed to the left, which would correspond with the right hand of Jacob, because the right hand is the hand of prominence, and the right hand in a blessing would be giving the rights of primogenitor. And he, he, then he stations the younger son to the right, that would correspond with the left, and when you know, Jacob goes to bless these two boys. It, this is, isn't it such an incredible picture? What does he do? He goes like this. He goes like this. He goes cross-armed. And Joseph, as the story goes on to tell, he's like, oh, father, father, I'm sorry, but you're mistaken. You know, he's thinking that, like his eyesight is bad. He doesn't see very well. He's thinking, you know, maybe his mental faculties, they've declined to the point that he doesn't realize what he's doing. And Jacob, in, in essence, responds to jo- Joseph by saying, look, I know exactly what I'm doing. This is intentional. What's going on? I think by the end of Jacob's life, and it was a crazy life, right? It was a roller coaster life. It was, you know, the, the guy had a lot of baggage. But by the end of his life, he realizes something about God. He realizes that Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh is cross-armed. And therefore, both of the sons will be blessed. Both of them are accepted into Israel. But uh, the younger son, the son with no cultural power and status, the son that nobody in that society would have expected to um, you know, to receive this blessing, that is the son whom um, God chooses. And you see this in every generation. God working, not with the son who had the status, but with the younger son. It's this, it repeats again and again. Abel over Cain. Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. Joseph and Judah over Reuben. Ephraim over Manasseh. And later, it's Moses over Aaron. And later still, It's David over all of his older brothers. By the end of Jacob's life, it's almost as if he has come to realize, he's come to believe in the great reversal. That this God is the God of the great reversal. This is God's way. 
And it's not the way of the world. In the world's economy, the first will remain first and the last will remain last. But in God's ways, in God's economy, in God's workings, who gets priority? It's always the weaker one, the lesser one. And again, when you think about it, like why? What is it about God that makes him... Is he like some kind of hopeless romantic who loves the underdog? <laughs> is he, does he love the, like, we're down by 35 at halftime and, and we're down to our second string quarterback? Does he love that kind of story? Is, I mean, I think he actually does love that kind of story. But the reason, the reason he does his storytelling this way is it emanates from something like deep in the heart of the Trinity. It, it emanates from this idea of this is the way I will redeem the world cross and resurrection. And you know, we could go on and talk about all the women in the Old Testament that get select, that are selected by God, how they are not the supermodels. They are not the women who, I mean, most of them are infertile. They can't have children. They're usually the less valued by the culture. Why is that? Why is that? Because Jesus would come. Um, I mean, the expectation was that the Messiah would come once and he would come in power. And Jesus announces, no, the Messiah will come twice and he will first come on a cross and only later in power. And so I don't know if this, like, if you're like, oh yeah, I already knew that whenever I read the Bible. But this whole narrated events go in the exact opposite orientation of what the culture and the society and any reader would expect All of these happen. This topsy-turvy happenings in the Bible are all because they are signposts of the cross and resurrection. And when I saw that, and when Keller pointed that out, I was like, that is a powerful framework to read the Bible. And it becomes really a framework for reading, you know, all of your life. Where else does it show up? I mean, certainly in the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. When Mary... When she finds out from the angel Gabriel that she will be the one that gives birth to the Messiah, what does she do? She sings. She sings about the great reversal. She sings aloud. He has brought down from, from uh, the rulers, from their thrones. He has brought them down, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away. She sings of the great reversal. When Jesus Christ starts his ministry in this world, uh, and, and he's selecting people to be part of it. How does he do so? He's, he's always grabbing like this. <laughs> he, grabs, he grabs a Samaritan. Samaritans were what? Racial inferiors of the Jews and enemies of the Jews. He's grabbing Samaritans. He's, he's using them in his stories. He's grabbing tax collectors, the most hated men in the society. Six times tax, collector, tax collectors show up in the Gospel of Luke. Every time it's positive. He's grabbing prostitutes. He's grabbing lepers. He's he even like when he literally lays his hands on people, he does it on children, lepers and children, children who were being undervalued in the in that society. And it it is beautiful. Um, this is such a different view of God than the rest of the world has. Like when another human being out there today uses the word G-O-D, this is not what they think of. Like when I read about this God, if there is a God, I'm like, this is the God I hope there would be. 
This is exactly what I would hope for for God. It just struck me as how like the rest of the world, when they use that word, they have no idea of this. They really don't. They, they do not know that deep in the heart of God is, is this. And I think he gives us such an opportunity to like, you have no idea what you're missing <laughs> if you don't know this about God. Now, there's so much that we could say about it. Deep in the heart of the Trinity is a heart to choose the weak and the powerless and the people that nobody else wanted and the outcasts to be his own beloved people. Um, you know, there are other places I could go to. I'll give you one more and then two applications. James, Jesus' brother, he writes an epistle. It's called the Epistle of James. James, I think it's somewhere in the second chapter, he asks a rhetorical question out loud. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promises to those who love him. And when you read it, it almost sounds like James is saying God will only choose the poor. Like he, if you make more than minimum wage, you need not apply. <laughs> so that's, no, I mean, God's going to save people from all classes of people. But James understands that in order to be saved, you have to go through your own reversal. Like if you are high up, and like all of us are, right? If you are high up, you have to become weak. Because re- salvation is only re- received through weakness and repentance. I mean, through seeing yourself as, as, a, as a truly lost and broken and needy person. And that's why that part of the message can sound so nonsensical and offensive to people who are successful and competent. James saw that. Okay, a couple of applications before we go to the second point. Number one, if these are the people that God often chooses to work with, then these are the people that we should be looking out for. And that seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? You know, we will be looking out for the powerless and those who are weak and those who are, who are, who are culturally undervalued. So I made up my list, and you could add your own people into this list, but, list, but you know, we would be... We should be looking out for unborn children who are, who are facing an abortion, for foster children, absolutely, for poor moms and fathers in broken homes, for the refugee, for the immigrant, for the migrant worker, for the elderly, for the mentally ill, the drug addicted, and drunk, for really anybody out there who lacks status and lacks power. We would, you would think that if this is who God is, these are the type of causes and people a cross-armed God gravitates towards. And so will we. Secondly, Christianity is not for those who want to seize power. I might even say it this way. Christianity is not for the powerful. It's not for the powerful. It's not for, be it those who are powerful in intellect or those who are you know, culturally and socially connected. And that should not characterize any Christian gathering. Great example of this is found in Luke chapter 14. Jesus is at a banquet in Luke 14. And he notices how everybody is trying to uh, make their way up to the better spots, the better seats, closer to the hosts at the table. In their world, the closer you sat to the host of the banquet, the greater status and prestige that was given to you. And if you're at that part of the table, it means you get to have important conversations with powerful people, right? It was almost a way of like first century uh, social networking where you could, you, you know, get to know to 
Cultivate relationships that help you climb the social ladder. Well, what does Jesus say? He says, when you are invited to a banquet, um, no, sit at the end of the table. Go and sit with the people. Seek out the people who, who are, they're further down the pecking order. The people who have no honor and prestige. Those are the ones that you should be sitting next to and having the conversations with. And, you know, his disciples had to be dumbfounded that he would say that. Like, I mean, what's the point of going to a dinner party if, if you're going to sit at the end of the table? Like, that's all that they were good for. And then Jesus doesn't let up on them. He says something totally countercultural. He says, and guys, if you throw, if you have a luncheon or you have a meal, do not invite your friends to it. Do not invite your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, and he's suggesting that he would do this too when he gave a banquet. When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I recognize the way Jesus teaches. He often teaches in hyperbole. There's a whole lot of hyperbole there. If you read it woodenly, it'll sound like you can't have a family meal with your, family meal with your grandparents. That's not what he's saying. But their world was a world centered around systems of reciprocity, where you would give a gift to somebody or throw a banquet for somebody with the hope that they would give you another gift or another favor or another banquet of equal or greater value. Reciprocity. I give to you, so you give back to me. Jesus says, don't play that game. No, actively befriend and serve people who could never open doors for you. And, it, and it, then it just leads to this very interesting question. Who are the people you should invite to the banquet? Who should be invited to the banquet? Who should be invited to the banquet? Like every Sunday, who should be invited to the banquet? Um, it, I, and if, here's what, it, it, it hit me. He says, if you throw a banquet, invite a blind man. Invite a lame man. Invite a paralytic. You know, press with me into that, that image for just a second. If you actually invited a blind person into your house for Sunday afternoon meal, do you have any idea how much work that would be for you? <laughs> like, really? If you invited a lame man into your house for a banquet, do you have any idea how much work that would be for you? And, <laughs> and you're like, it's not worth all the trouble. And Jesus says, oh, yes. Oh, yes, it is. For you will be repaid times innumerable in the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I think there, I love it. It's like there's this whole theology of, of Christian banqueting and Christian banqueting tied up in those verses. So those are the people that the cross-armed God chooses. Um, and there are a lot of different ways, um, other ways we could apply it. But let's move on to number two, the pattern of living in his upside-down kingdom. And I'm taking this from Luke chapter 6, verse 20. It's in the section of Luke's gospel that is referred to as a sermon on the plain. That is less well known than the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount. Most people have heard of the Sermon on the Mount before Jesus' longest teaching in all of the New Testament. The Sermon on the Plain is very similar with a little bit of changes to it, probably preached um, at a different time. And he's asking the question, 
uh, when the king comes, would I bring my kingdom? What kind of kingdom will I bring to earth? What will be the pattern and values and priorities and kind of how does my kingdom operate? And he answers <laughs> this way, 620. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are, are the, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I say, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your consolation. And woe to you who are full now. For you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Uh, We'll break it down into three, imagine three columns. The good things, the hard things, and the best things. They're all found in the blessings and woes. The good things, he says, the good things of life. You're rich, you are full, you laugh, people speak well of you. These are all good things, absolutely. They're gifts from God in heaven. And we might say that these all correspond to uh, power, comfort, success, and recognition. But then he provides that second category, the hard things. The hard things of the kingdom. You are poor. You are hungry. You weep. You are hated. When you read uh, these par- this part of the kingdom, you're like, who would ever want to sign up to be part of that kind of kingdom? <laughs> you know? Um, who wants to be part of the kingdom of weakness, deprivation, loss, and exclusion? <laughs> you know, it had to be dumbfounding to his hearers. And yet the message of the sermon is obviously that the people who are, the people who are truly blessed in my kingdom are the ones whose lives are going in the exact opposite direction that you would want them to go. And here's where Tim Keller is at his best as he explains, like, what is Jesus, what Jesus is really getting after here? He says it this way, and I thought this was probably the money quote of the, of the whole book. The good things of this world, when received without faith in God, become woes to you. They become curses. The good things of this world, if received without faith in God, end up, they really end up enslaving you. It's like, as David Foster Wallace has said, if you worship something besides a real God, it will eat you alive. If you worship power, comfort, success, and recognition, which, let's be honest, that's what the majority of people out there are worshiping in Meridian, Idaho. Power, success, comfort, recognition. If you worship those things, it will end up eating you alive. It will enslave you because it's an idol that consumes you. So the good things of this world, they are good, but without faith in God, they're curses. But the hard things of this world, if received with faith in God and faith in the king, end up, it ends up bringing, you know, the greatest blessings in this life, doesn't it? It's the source of the greatest blessings. And the only way it can work is because it's really an upside-down kingdom <laughs> with an upside-down king. So in the sermon on the mountain, on the plain, Jesus isn't telling us that we should go out and seek after poverty and deprivation. He's not telling us, like, we're not supposed to be masochists. 
If you go to the book of Proverbs, it tells you that you should you know, avoid behaviors that lead you into poverty, reckless kinds of behavior that lead to those outcomes. But what he's saying is that in this life, if you follow me, the, the hard stuff, it's inevitably going to come to you. It's going to get you. It can't be avoided. They're gonna find, it's going to find you in this world. And those who have a redemptive perspective on suffering will actually take those hard things, respond to it in faith, and it ends up being the source of their greatest blessings. And that's where it leads to the third list that I said, the best things in this life. And he gave, he gave them to us. He lists them as the kingdom of God, those who are empty or filled, those who are weeping, they laugh, and those who are excluded and opposed, their reward is great in heaven. The best things in this life. The best things in this life are not through the good things in this life. It's through the hard things in this life. Amen? And the best things in this life, you may not even get all of them in this life. <laughs> um, they may come at the very end. But I would suggest a lot of them do come to us in this life, in the very middle of the hard things. And you know, you read Paul and his epistles. He's, he's always doing the same thing. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I have a thorn in my flesh, that's when Christ shows most powerfully through me. Um, you know, it's the hard things that bring about the greater fruitfulness and faith. The, how do you get love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, except through the hard things of this life? You know, Paul is, he's consciously living in an upside-down kingdom. And I just think it... I'm only scratching the surface. Like, it applies to so much of life. So much of life. I was even thinking about this morning in the shower how, you know, and we keep talking about this, lots of people are worried how, you know, Christianity is you know, being relegated in our culture and Christians are losing status and they're kind of being marginalized. And, and I keep thinking, I keep thinking, like, when the culture does that to us, they're just pitching to God's hot zone. <laughs> like God really, he's really good with this. He's really good when that happens. If you ever see a major league baseball player heat map as a hitter, you know, he's got the high outside strike. He can't hit it. It's blue, but like right in the center of the strike zone, it's flaming red. I feel like they're pitching to, um, to God's hot zone. But uh, other applications include these three. First, it's critical for us to communicate the upside-down kingdom to our kids. I might go so far as to say that this is the most important part of discipleship that we could give them. And I love that we catechize our kids. I love for them to memorize the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. The only... And, and I, love, I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I love the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I love um, uh, what's the New City Catechism. Those are great. The only problem is there's not a single question in those that tell your kids that, oh, by the way, God is cross-armed. Oh, by the way, uh, God is topsy-turvy and upside down. This is, this is how he works. Remember the quote I said earlier, how every one of us wants the storyline of our lives to go from strength to strength and victory and victory until it all ends happily ever after? That is us with our kids on steroids. 
That is exactly what we want for our kids. That we go out of our way to make that the storyline for our kids. And every weakness as a parent, we beat it away. Every failure, is, every shameful piece of shame that comes towards them, you know, we parry it with a blow, right? Um, and part of that is absolutely appropriate. But at the same time, we have to be, we have to be telling them that God does this. And God does this. And the only way for you, you know, to go from death to life is for you to go through your own this. Both to be united with Jesus and his cross and his sufferings. And, and frankly, even to take up your own cross, which is shameful, and to come and follow me. We've got to be enforcing that um, reinforcing that to our kids again and again and again. And that's just not the way that we normally do the suburban kid, you know, soccer mom, soccer dad, little league baseball dad, get straight A's kind of life, is it? Secondly, I think the cross-resurrection matrix, it applies, it should be a central feature of our Christian friendships. What do I mean? If we helped each other see life through a cross and resurrection matrix, obviously it helps us as we're going through suffering. It changes the way that we process suffering. Um, but it also gives us, it gives us a way of doing life differently. Because in the upside down kingdom, the way up is down. <laughs> it means the way up is down. The way to true power is to give up power to serve. The way to lasting happiness is not to seek your own happiness so much as the happiness of others. And if we could make that a central feature of our Christian friendship so that we're almost like actively trying to push this into each other's hearts, like what a friendship that would be. Now, thirdly, I think it also applies even to our friendships with um, people who are not Christians. I mean, because the hard things are going to find them too. You can't go through this life without suffering and, and suffering a lot. And you have, I know you have friends who are not Christians. When they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even if they don't have Jesus yet as their good shepherd, I think you have good grounds to say something like this to them. To say, to say you know what? The God I believe in, I've seen him do amazing things in the valley of the shadow of death. I have seen this God, he is, he is great there. Um, I, I have seen him do amazing things with people in their helplessness and their weakness and their pain. I have seen how God takes people through the hard things to lead them into the best things. And so you may be feeling really hopeless right now. Um, I can speak this word of hope to you. <laughs> I can be praying this line of hope to you. I just think it, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we could say to others. Um, you know, praying that for your friends. I would say that to you, if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, there is a misperception among a lot of people and you know, probably organized religion is to blame for part of this, but that, you know, Christians, what we really want, we want something from you. <laughs> That's what pastors want. We want your money. We want to dictate your life. We want to tell you how to live your life. We want to control your life. And no, 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 no. We don't want anything from you. We want this for you. We want Jesus for you. Because Jesus Christ 
has completely changed our life. And what we really want for the world is the best things. We want for you the kingdom of heaven. We want you when you are empty to be filled. We want you when you are weeping to laugh. We want your reward. We want it to be said on the last day that your reward is great because you have Jesus. And yeah, if you ever want to have a conversation about that with me or another Christian, I know we would all love to do that. I'm out of time. The people who get chosen by the cross-armed God, the cross-resurrection God, the pattern for living in his upside-down kingdom, it's all encapsulated in the Messiah himself. Here we are centuries later, and Jesus Christ is the most influential and famous person who has ever lived. Whole civilizations have been built on his teachings. He's at the center of hundreds of millions of, of people alive And how did he accomplish this? (laughs) By being born in obscurity. And by avoiding ever getting involved in any of the powerful political or economic or academic networks of his day. How did this happen? By being killed tragically in his early 30s. You know, if he had come as a philosopher to set up a philosophical system of thought... That might have been really good news for the smart people. If he had come as a general to crush all of the opposition, that would be great for the strong people. You know, but he came, he came in weakness. And that's why across history and the nations of the world, we have seen people from all classes and conditions of life find the richest blessings in this Jesus Christ Because when he reaches out to get them, he does so as a cross-armed God. Amen.